The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Avery Schmitz with an episode of Chatter for January 19th, 2023. For today's episode, the Lawfare team decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast from David Priest and Shane Harris, featuring in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled A Post-Presidency Done Right with Gene Becker. In honor of the 30th anniversary of President George H.W. Bush's departure from the White House, Priest sat down with Becker to discuss her nearly 25 years as chief of staff to the former president. This is Chatter. Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, former George H.W. Bush Chief of Staff Gene Becker on A Post-Presidency Done Right. And he called me into his office and he said, I have no idea who to hire to be my new chief of staff. Barbara thinks you might be willing to stay until I figured out and to at least keep the seat warm. And I said, sir, I don't know how to be chief of staff. He said, oh, don't worry about that. Can you imagine, David? It's 9-11. You're at an Outback Steakhouse in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and in walks George and Barbara Bush. He said they gave us a standing ovation. Mrs. Bush is convinced that her husband became the father Bill Clinton never had. And I think that's absolutely right. Jean Becker, it is a pleasure to see you. Thank you for joining me on Chatter. David, I'm so excited to be here. And I have said for years that one of the greatest gifts George Herbert Walker Bush gave me it's a gift that keeps on giving is I've met so many interesting, fascinating people through him. And I would put you on that list. It's great to be on your show. Well, thank you. It was uh, also my pleasure that that he connected us uh, in, in, and we'll get there. We'll, we'll talk about the, the connection there, but we are coming up on an anniversary, one that uh, we remember in very different ways because of very different roles, but we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of George Bush leaving the presidency. And when we say George Bush, uh, that's how he always <laughs> referred to himself. We know him now so commonly as George H.W. Bush, but that's something he, I don't think he ever took to. He was 41 eventually, but he was he was George Bush. So when he left office, um, you were working with the first lady, is that correct? That is correct. I was on her staff during the White House years. I was one of her deputy press secretaries. 
And when he lost the election in 1992 to Bill Clinton, like the entire White House staff, I was trying to figure out what came next in my life. And she called me up to the White House residence one day and asked if I would come to Houston with them Mm -hmm. and help her with her memoirs. She was going to write it herself, and she did, but she needed a researcher, an editor, just, you know, someone to help with the details. And I was thrilled. So I came down to Houston in January of 1993. And much to my surprise, I never left. (laughs) So so that's how you started the Mm. post-presidency. But let's go back a little bit earlier. How did you get to that work with the First Lady in the first place? You had been you had been working in journalism and then somehow you decide to to sign on and actually switch to the other side and, you know, work, work, work for the people you're covering. How did that come about? You're going to swear I'm making this up. Uh, so I was a newspaper reporter for 10 years and the last four years was with USA Today. And in 1988, that was the year President Bush was elected president. I was a member of USA Today's election team and I was the feature writer. I actually interviewed, there were 15 people running for president that year, and we did this whole series called The Candidates at Home, and I'm the one who went to all of their homes and interviewed them. It was a great, fun assignment, but one of my jobs, and I wasn't very happy about it, was USA Today convinced Barbara Bush and Kitty Dukakis, the wife of the Democratic candidate, Governor Dukakis, to do a weekly column for us in September and October. It ran every Monday, and I was their editor. And when I was given this assignment, David, I was sort of grumpy about it. I thought it might be a little limiting and confining, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure I wanted to be their editor. I absolutely loved it. I got to know both women really, really well. Uh, I would deal, Mrs. Bush in particular, wanted to deal with me directly. I always had to cut their columns. They were always too long. Uh, But I I got to know them and and found them to both be interesting and fascinating women. Had you ever heard of anything like that before, Jean? Because I don't recall a joint column under those circumstances yeah. before. And I'm just wondering how how they pulled it off. I mean, that's We amazing. were shocked they said yes. And they haven't done it since. No. But they, they were wonderful columns. I still have every copy. They, they both did a wonderful job and hmm. told funny behind-the-scenes stories. But you fast forward, after the election, President Bush is now president-elect, and the USA Today wanted me wanted to use my relationship with the incoming first lady. I think, David, this is before this term was widely used. They wanted me to pitch the idea to embed me with the Bush family inauguration week. Mm. And they thought that maybe Barbara Bush would say yes, just because we knew by that time we knew each other pretty well. So I asked her chief of staff to lunch, Susan Porter Rose, to pitch the idea. She arrives at the lunch and she is just livid. She's been chewed out by Marlon Fitzwater, the, who will be the president's press secretary. Mm-hmm. Susan had hired a woman named Anna Perez to be the first lady's press secretary. She'd hired one of her deputy press secretaries who came from the campaign. Anna came from the Hill. 
And the second deputy press secretary was going to be somebody else from the campaign. And Marlon chewed Susan out and said, you have got to have someone in the first lady's press office who has real press experience, mm -hmm. someone who knows the ropes, who knows these people, know how they think. And Susan is so mad and she's just really angry. And she says, I don't need... I don't know who to hire. I don't know anybody in the press I can call up and offer this job. And, and I'm thinking of saying to her, this is sort of inappropriate for you to be bitching to me about Marlon Fitzwater. Right. Anyway, I still remember when that light bulb went off and she stopped and she looked at me across the table and she said, oh my God, mm -hmm. she offered me the job on the spot. Wow. Now, how did your... I didn't say yes. Yeah, I was going to say... It took say, me a couple of weeks to say yes. That, that's very different than what you expected going into that session <laughs> and something certainly your bosses uh, weren't expecting to happen when they offered no. this this opportunity to try to get this embed. How did you decide to do it? it took me a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. I really loved my job at USA Today. I loved being a reporter. I was going to be one of the White House reporters I hate to say this out loud, but it was going to be a huge pay cut. For the first time in my life, I wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. And mm -hmm. I just wasn't sure I wanted to do it. I was sort of in my dream job. And I mm -hmm. went home for Thanksgiving. My mom had already died. My dad was a farmer in Missouri, never graduated from high school, but was one of the smartest men I knew. By the way, I grew up a Democrat. By this time, my dad was a Republican. But I grew up a Democrat. Anyway, I tell my dad what was happening. And he said, let me get this straight. The incoming first lady of the United States of America has offered you a job on her staff. And I think you said that your office would actually be in the White House. And you're thinking about it. He said, what the hell's wrong with you? Reality check. Reality check. I went yeah. to the phone, called Susan Porter Rose, and accepted the job. Now, at this point, you had actually met George Bush already and interviewed him. Do I remember that right? You're correct. I'd interviewed him a couple of times, did not know him well, because I was the feature writer for the election team. I was mm -hmm. not the reporter who covered him for USA Today, but I had interviewed him, Mrs. Bush, as part of the At Home series. I had interviewed him a couple, I had interviewed him before the convention to do a feature story about the Bush family. I had, but I did not know him well. Yeah. So I'm curious about this and I, I've never asked you this before, but given that we're, we're going to talk about many years of working in the post-presidency and, and learn a little bit about what a post-presidency can be like, I've, I've never asked you if you had any experience with or thoughts about former presidents before working in the White House and then moving to Houston? That is, were you aware in the 1980s about what Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan were doing or not doing? Or is that just not, background noise? Not even a little bit. They were not on my radar screen. Wow. <laughs> and I thought about any of the post president, the former presidents and what they were doing and it was yeah. not on my radar screen. Well, I'll tell you, they're going getting into the eighties, my vague recollection is that the only real times we thought about former presidents were 
if they flirted somehow with coming back into the arena as mm -hmm. Gerald Ford kind of a little bit did in 1980, um, or more likely when there was a presidential library opening or some other event where presidents would appear publicly. And then we'd see them on the nightly news smiling together. Yeah. But even that wasn't as much of a thing back then because we no. didn't have quite as many of them. Um, the 1990s really developed a couple of things, I think, generally in the post-presidency. One was more of these because you had a succession of presidential library openings in a period of 10, 15 years. But then also the former presidents actually going overseas and getting publicity for it, like Jimmy Carter traveling in the 1990s, I believe to North Korea and Haiti, mm -hmm. but I may have that wrong. Um, but in the 1980s, it really wasn't a thing, right? It wasn't a thing. Now they sort of did their own thing and uh, you didn't hear that much. I think they gave speeches, but they were not newsmakers, as mm -hmm. you pointed out. They really weren't. So you took the job and uh, worked with First Lady, and then the, the presidency ends after the election of 1992, a, um, a very close election with the oddity of Ross Perot in the mix, but uh, Bill Clinton wins without a majority of the vote, but with a majority in the Electoral College. Suddenly it's January, and the presidency is ending, and now you're going to Houston. What were your expectations? Did you did you think you would be solely be working with the, the former first lady on the book? Or did you already have a sense that there would be some other duties uh, helping her? No, no. And uh, I did not. I, I packed up a couple of boxes. Mm -hmm. I did not move to Houston. I had every expectation that I would come back to D.C. And um, I rented a furnished apartment in Houston and at some point during the year, I actually accepted a job with Chicago Sun-Times mm. and newspaper. They knew that I could not, would not start the job until after uh, it would be March of 94, which okay. is when we would be done with Mrs. Bush's book. Right. But what happened, David, uh, a couple of, you know, life is just, life is just interesting and so there was no place for me to work in the office. Mm -hmm. And so they put up a card table. The uh, President Bush's post-presidency office had two kitchens, one for everybody else and then a little bitty kitchen off of his office, which is where he would make his coffee and had a little refrigerator. They put a card table in that kitchen for me to work on Mrs. Bush's book. Wow, the luxury and the glamour. Oh, my right? gosh. <laughs> and that is how I got to know the former president. Yeah. You know, he walks in one day to make a cup of coffee and there sits this person and I reintroduced <laughs> myself and he pretended he remembered me. I doubt if he did. And, but we became friends. He would come in and make his coffee every morning when he was not traveling or come get his glass of milk and whatever. And then I went to Kennebunkport with them that summer for the first time because we were still working on the book and I would go on the, go out on the boat with him. I probably really got to know him mm -hmm. even more so uh, that summer yeah. because Kennebunkport's very intimate. I'm, you know, right there all day long. Mm -hmm. He'd walk into his bedroom and there I would be with his wife working on the book. But March of 94 rolls around and I'm getting ready to leave 
to go, get on with my life and to go back to being a newspaper reporter. And he called me into his office. His first post White House chief of staff, a woman named Rosa Maria, and she was older. She had told him in the beginning, I will do this one year and then I'm mm. retiring. And she meant and it. She, did not change her mind. She, right after the first of the year of 94, she told President Bush, I'm out of here. And he called me into his office and he said, I have no idea who to hire to be my new chief of staff. I, I'm sort of in denial. I need to figure this out. Barbara thinks you might be willing to stay until I figure it out and to at least keep the seat warm. And to keep the buses running on time, would you be willing to stay? Mm -hmm. uh, the first thing I said to him, David, was, I have no idea how to be a chief of staff. Right. I've never been anybody's boss. I've never done a budget. For the most part, David, I was a writer and a reporter. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, sir, I don't know how to be chief of staff. He said, oh, don't worry about that. He says, we'll figure it out as we go. We'll just take one day at a time. And he gave us that we, I gave him the deadline of Labor Day. This was March. And let's face it, I'm sort of excited about another summer in Kennebunkport. So I said, okay, sir, by Labor Day, I have this job offer with Chicago Sun-Times. Let me see if I can put them off till September. They said yes. It was one of my old editors at USA Today, by the way, who was hiring me, which made this easier. And again, you're going to swear I'm making this up. We never talked about it again until, I don't know, six or seven years ago. We never talked about it again. We just, we were off and running the whole first year. He was out of the White House. Uh -huh. I think he was a little quiet. I yeah. think he was trying to figure out what came next. Uh -huh. I think he was trying to figure out his post-presidency. He was hurt. He was licking his wounds. Uh -huh. And about the time I became his chief of staff. I, I think he woke up one morning and thought, I'm back. <laughs> I think he was just tired of being mm -hmm. sad. I think he figured it out. And we were off and running. Um, and of course, both Jeb and George W. were running for governor of their respective states in 94, which mm -hmm. turned everything upside down. So I, about six or seven years ago, I teased him. And I said, you know what, sir? For 25 years or whatever it was, I've been waiting for you to walk into my office and tell me that you found a chief of staff. Yeah. He says, what are you talking about? So I said, <laughs> in March of 94, you asked me to fill in until you found someone. So for 25 years, I've been waiting for you to find someone. And he said, you're making this up anyway. <laughs> oh, he didn't remember it that way. He didn't remember it that way. Well, you knew. That you were the acting chief of staff. But the point is, after you've been doing it for a while and it's working for everybody, which clearly it was, <laughs> there was never a thought to do anything else. I finally just got cards printed up. I didn't even ask yep. them. I just, yep. I desperately needed a business card. And uh, so I just got some printed up that said chief of staff and right. the rest is history. Okay. I heard you a couple of minutes ago, Gene, mention something that I have to follow up on. You mentioned that when you moved from the White House to Houston and began this work initially, that you packed a couple of boxes, you know, yeah. moved them, came along. In recent years, 
the packing of boxes and taking them from the White House <laughs> has taken on a different flavor. So I, I want to get a sense from you whether, you know, did you have any sense of how any classified materials that would have been floating around the White House, they certainly weren't in your boxes. They weren't in any of my boxes. Any experience, anything like what we've been reading about no. regarding recent presidents in terms of the commingling and suddenly the president having classified material in his own office? You know, David, what surprises me, and I remember being so hurt by this, and the Secret Service uh, were so apologetic, the agents who posted around the White House, they were called special office officers, they were uniformed Secret Service, starting on January 21st. Mm-hmm. Every night when we left work, they searched our bags. They were, and I, and, and they were looking for... I, I my impression then is they were not looking for classified documents. They certainly wouldn't be from the East Wing staff, but they wanted to make sure we weren't stealing things. You weren't <laughs> and, stealing presidential. And I don't know. And I don't know. And, yeah. You know, they just said we are so sorry. This is just standard operating procedure. Oof. That during change administration, every night when you leave, we're going to have to search your bags to make sure you're not taking home anything yes. you're not supposed to take home. And I have thought about that so many times in the yeah. last year. And I'm, I'm like, don't they search everybody's bags? <laughs> you would think so. But you would think so. Yeah. So much. But there, there was an issue uh, that I recall being written about at the time about just the, the, the sheer volume of material that has to come and be processed yes. to go into the presidential library and the presidential museum. And the National Archives had to rent what, what used to be, what, a restaurant or a bowling was, alley or something? It was something. a combination bowling alley and Chinese restaurant Yeah, is what they rented in College Station, Texas, which is where Texas A&M is, which mm-hmm. is where President Bush's library is. The mm-hmm. library opened in 1997. So from 1993 until Four the years. library opened in November of 97, sure. they operated out of an old bowling alley. And that's where they moved all the files. But to be clear, that was not the the president's warehouse. That was the National Archives doing their job. I'm sorry, say that again. That was not the president's personal operation of putting no. documents there. That was the National Archives following their normal procedures. That was all operated yeah. by National Archives. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's not to say that former President Bush was was not still thinking about national security matters. So by the time you are the acting de facto chief of staff in 1994, he he is, you know, talking to former national security uh, staff, including Brent Scowcroft, because they were working on their book, A World Mm -hmm. Transformed. And he was, of course, doing occasional visits here and there, a lot of correspondence. But among the other things he did, uh, he was getting regular intelligence briefings, wasn't he? He was. He was. He was. President Bush, if he were here with you right now, David, would make you smile from ear to ear. He would tell you that one of his favorite jobs ever was when he was DCI, when he was head of the CIA. It, It second only to being president of the United States. But when you look at his resume, including vice president, UN ambassador, envoy to China, 
he was only head of the CIA for less than two years, I think. Um, yeah, very close to one year exactly, in fact. Yeah. Um, shocking. Because Gerald Ford lost the election to President mm. Carter, and he actually asked President Carter if he could stay on, and President mm. Carter declined. But he loved, he was, he felt very close to the agency. Mm-hmm. I think he uh, sort of considered himself a CIA agent. And I have a couple of funny stories to tell you about that. Mm-hmm. But he got, he got briefed when he was not traveling. He got briefed every single day. And mm-hmm. when, and he, there also was a classified fax machine mm-hmm. in his personal aide's office that was strictly for the use of the CIA to fax him classified documents, but he had an in-person briefing. He just, he loved it. And there's no law or regulation governing that. That's simply a courtesy of the current commander-in-chief to his predecessors. Mm -hmm. It is offered. Some presidents have taken advantage of it, uh, such as President Bush. Others have taken advantage of it more sporadically, if Mm -hmm. at all. But it's just a, a courtesy based on class and integrity and an understanding that if there is any classified material as part of these briefings, um, we trust that a former commander in chief will protect it. And we especially trust that a former commander in chief who was the director of central intelligence yes. will protect it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, you know, I did have classified clearance well, when I was his chief of staff and occasionally mm-hmm. I would suggest that I should sit in on his briefings. Mm-hmm. No. He was sort of, you know, he, to your point, it's not that he didn't trust me, David. It's just, he was very protective of that information. And truthfully, he was right. He was right. I did not belong in those briefings. It's need to know. And there, I didn't need to know. So. I have a, a vague recollection of my first interaction with former president Bush and in fact, I, I was so focused on the interaction with him and the, the substance of it that I suspect you and I met that day and I have no memory of it. I am so embarrassed to say that, but here I was, (laughs) here I was a young CIA officer and I had been selected with one of my colleagues to fly to Houston because president Bush was traveling overseas and he was going to a region that I had been working on and they wanted a a face-to-face in-person interactive discussion with him Um, rather than the people he was normally seeing. So we flew out. And my recollection is that it was the two of us and him. I I don't recall anyone else being in the room, but maybe there wasn't. I've forgotten it. Yeah. But I was so focused on making sure that, you know, I had the information right that we had worked on back back at CIA headquarters and I was going to be able to communicate it clearly. He was the first former president I would have briefed um, that honestly... You could have been standing there the whole time, and I'm not sure I would have seen you because I had blinders on so much. As it, sh- as it should have been. Yeah. I would say as it should have been. But he certainly, my memory of the the briefing was that um, this didn't seem unusual at all for him. Uh, it was almost a continuation of his time as president, um, but he was extremely appreciative. That is, mm-hmm. he went out of his way to make us comfortable and to to say thank you for coming out and helping me. Now, he wasn't doing foreign policy. He wasn't going to these countries with an official mission on behalf of the current commander in chief. But anytime a former president travels overseas, the leaders and the peoples of that country 
kind of still see them as representing the United States. And I had the sense he just wanted to be prepared and not go into a meeting with a prime minister or a king or a president and say something that was demonstrably wrong simply because he wasn't prepared for the meeting. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. exactly right. And certainly in the in I know the first five or six years of his post-presidency, a lot of them were his peers. Yeah. And I remember when President Clinton invited all the former presidents, the Prime Minister of Israel, Israel uh, Prime Minister Rabin, Rabin. had mm-hmm. been assassinated. Yeah. And he, the President uh, Clinton, kindly invited all the former presidents to go. Mm-hmm. And only President Bush and President Carter went. And the president was holding bilateral sessions because heads of state from all over the world had come and, and president Bush and president Carter were in a holding room down the hallway. I think they were in a hotel room. And when he came home, president Bush said it was sort of embarrassing that finally someone came into the hotel room and said, president Bush, some of the heads of state are asking to meet with you. Mm -hmm. And he goes out in the hall and there's a line of like 10 of them (laughs) waiting to meet with them. But as he said, they were his, they were his peers. He had been interacting Uh, with them on the job. Right. These were people who he had worked with for years, uh, going back to his VP days. And, but he did say that president Clinton sort of gave him a hard time Mm -hmm. on the plane coming home about that. He thinks he had more bilateral meetings than he did. (laughs) Yeah. And that's that raises an interesting question about the post-presidency, because what does a president do with his time? Uh, so far, all his. What does a president do with his time after leaving office? Um, some presidents have been old enough that they are essentially retired, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 it's, and it's golf and you know other leisure activities. Some have retired young and energetic enough. They've got a whole lot of life left and a lot of things to do. And the way you've described it in those early years, George Bush wasn't quite sure what to do, but he had a lot of ideas after that initial period. And with you coming in at the beginning of 1994, that's kind of when it all kicked in. And suddenly it's Texas A&M planning for the Bush school (laughs) and the library. It's over a hundred speeches, campaigns all over the place. It's foreign visits. Um, He, Keeps probably up there in terms of modern presidents with uh, Jimmy Carter, possibly as the busiest once he decided to really get going. He was extraordinarily busy. And and one of the decisions he made, David, early on was not to establish a new nonprofit or any kind of foundation. Mm -hmm. He felt there were enough existing wonderful programs that he wanted to support. And the two big areas were cancer. Um, President and Mrs. Bush had lost a three-year-old daughter to leukemia in the 1950s, and they had been fairly active in, in cancer issues since then. But in their post-presidency, it, it was both of their, one of their major causes. They actually helped found a new group that initially was called the National Dialogue on Cancer, and then was called Sea change uh, They were chairman of this group and brought together 
government people, nonprofit leaders, scientists, doctors. It was an amazing organization. He also became chairman of the board of MD Anderson, the cancer hospital here in Houston. Right. He and Mrs. Bush, MD Anderson once told me that they estimated that the Bushes probably raised about $100 million for them that all went to cancer research. Mm-hmm. So that was one big project that kept him busy on multiple fronts. And the other was he continued his Points of Light Foundation, which is still going strong today, is chaired by his son, Neil. But the whole point of Points of Light is he truly felt, and this was his favorite quote about Points of Light, that any definition of a successful life had to include serving others. And he just felt that everybody should give back. Everybody had something to give. And his point was, it doesn't mean you have to donate a lot of money. You don't have to be Warren Buffett or Bill Gates. You can just volunteer at the local food bank. Or if you can, you know, just do something, take it, even cook a meal for the family down the street who's just suffered a death or has someone in the hospital. So the whole point of Points of Light is to encourage people to be volunteers and to get involved. He used to call it, Mrs. Bush used to call it, you have to believe in something bigger than yourself. And he devoted a lot of time and energy. And like I said, the Points of Light is still alive and well today and still doing great work. Um, so that's sort of what in through the 90s and, of course, the building of the library. And then when the Bush School mm-hmm. opened, the George Bush School of Government and Public Service, it's 20, it was 25 years old last year. He had great hope and faith in these young people that they were the future of the United States. And it's a wonderful school that it's produced a lot of public servants. A lot of them are at your former agency. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are at the State Department, they're foreign service officers. That school was everything and still is everything that he believed it would be. Mm-hmm. One of the stories that I loved hearing uh, when I was helping out at the agency after leaving with some uh, training of analysts is hearing some of the brand new analysts who would come and had just started. They'd been at the Bush School, they had received their degrees, graduated, and received employment at the CIA and started their their public service. And in some cases, we'd be talking to them about how to give effective briefings. And they would say, well, you know, let me tell you about the classroom experience I had. Uh, there we were in one of our classes and we're supposed to be pretending to brief a president. And then George Bush walks in and the professor has arranged for George Bush to be sitting there at the front of the room to pretend to be the president. And we have to brief an actual <laughs> former president. And they said it was uh, nerve wracking. Uh, everybody w- was sweating when it began. And then by the end of the class session, they loved it because he, he wasn't he wasn't a screamer. He wasn't yelling at the briefers that they weren't doing a good job. He He was polite. He was helpful. He gave constructive criticism. And they all got a lot out of that experience. He certainly wasn't distant from the Bush School. He loved doing that. And sometimes he would just pop into the classrooms unannounced and sit in the back. Can you imagine being a professor at the Bush School? And, no pressure. And suddenly, yeah, the <laughs> President Bush walks in and says, oh, just keep going. I'm just, I'm just going to listen in. Just a right. little bit of pressure. 
So there's a lot in the, the 1990s, that first five, six years um, of being a former president that, that was keeping him busy and keeping you busy trying to juggle all of these things. But one thing he was very adamant about was doing very, very few press interviews. Why was that? And how much pressure were you getting to, to get him to talk about this issue or that? He sort of made the decision, um, and of course this, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but this became even more, uh, he was more adamant once his son became president. But President Bush sort of felt like he, even though he wasn't retired, he felt like he was now a behind the scenes person. That he had had his chance, he'd had his time on the main stage, and he genuinely, David, would say to me more than once, well, why would people wonder what I think? And I'm like, oh, you know, I still remember, and this is fast forwarding, when Twitter was very, very popular. And his press person, a wonderful guy named Jim McGrath, tried to talk President Bush into going on Twitter. He just had mm. no interest. And, it, <laughs> and he said, I still remember, he looked at Jim and he said, I can't imagine sending out one of those Twitter things. He said, why would people care what I think? We did eventually talk him into it. It was helpful because heaven knows he didn't like to do press releases or anything like that. So sometimes it was just helpful for him to tweet out, you know, congratulations to the Oak Ridge boys for winning, you know, some country music award. That would be the kind of things that, that he would tweet out, but he just, he felt, he felt like he was out of the advice and or opinion business. Yeah. Um, yeah. He didn't think it was appropriate for him to speak out on issues. He really didn't. And that was a little bit tough during the uh, political campaigns of his sons, because as a father, you want to be out there just being what, what, what family is being that support network. And, um, uh, but you have a real challenge, uh, especially in 2000, right? With right. people saying, oh, we, we, really, we really want some separation there right. if we can have it publicly. Um, obviously, some things behind the scenes. Um, but that led me to, you know, to, the, um, to the administration of uh, 43, as we'll say, that one of the oddest incidences you had as chief of staff, I'm hoping you can tell the story of September 11th when... Um, <laughs> you didn't know where the president and first lady, the former president and former first lady were. Um, tell that story about uh, how you how you were interacting with the Secret Service and didn't know their secret location. Um, you know, it it's, would be very hard to find a funny story from 9-11. I probably have the only funny story from 9-11. So we were in Washington, D.C. on September 10th for a meeting of the National Dialogue on Cancer. It was the annual conference of this big cancer group, the President Mrs. Bush, the 41s. Now that now that George W's president, we'll have to say 41 and 43. The 41s spent the night of September 10th at the White House. I was gonna stay in Washington because I was on the board of directors of this cancer group and we were gonna have our board meeting the next day. The Bushes were flying on a private plane that day to St. Paul, Minnesota. They had a speech. They were appearing at some conference to give a speech. Hmm. So 9-11 happens 
And because I'm on the board of a cancer group, there were several doctors on that board who were DC based. We immediately shut down the meeting because they needed to go to work. Um, and I went to my ho- up to my hotel room. You know, we're all in a state of shock. And I called the Secret Service in Kennebunkport, which is where we were based at the time. And I said, where are they? Where are they? And he asked me if I was on a secure, secured line, a classified line. I said, no, I'm on my, I'm on the phone in my hotel room. And the agent said, unfortunately, I cannot tell you where they are, but they have been taken to a safe, secure location, but it's classified where they are. I cannot tell you where they are. Well, what I assume, David, the worst kept secret in Washington for years, and now I think it is public knowledge, is in West Virginia, there's these underground bunkers that were built during the Cold War where Washington, D.C. would be evacuated. The leaders, our government leaders, would be evacuated in the case of a nuclear war. I honestly thought they were in those bunkers in West Virginia. And so the day goes on, and I'm in the hotel lobby, the hotel had brought up, brought in some big TV sets for all of us to watch. The president's going to address the nation. We're all sitting in the hotel lobby waiting for the president. And my cell phone rings. Everybody was surprised because cell service that day in D.C. I don't know if you were in Washington at that time. But if you remember, cell service was really not good that day. Anyway, I answer the phone and it's President Bush. And I was so happy to hear from him. And so typical of him, he's worried about me. Asking if you're okay. Yeah, he had no idea where I was. And I said, well, sir, I'm at the Renaissance Hotel in Washington, D.C. I'm fine. I need to figure out a way to get back to Kennebunkport. I did eventually get, got a rental car and drove back. Uh, But I said, I'm fine. I said, I know you cannot tell me where you are because I know it's classified, but I'm just so happy to hear your voice. He says, what do you mean? I can't tell you where I am. So I told him about the conversation with the Secret Service. He says, well, Gene, Barr and I are at the Hampton Inn outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We've been hanging out at a Hampton Inn all day. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, they they grounded our plane in Milwaukee. See, he says, I think the entire Chicago field office of the Secret Service met our plane. They escorted us to this Hampton Inn in the suburbs of Milwaukee. And he said, it is pretty secure. Who would look for a former president here? But then he t- told me that he and Mrs. Bush, like everybody else, they've been watching TV all day. They had talked to the president twice. Mm-hmm. And he told me about his conversations with his son. He says, at one point, we realized that we'd not eaten literally all day. There's an Outback Steakhouse right across the street. So he said, Barr and I walked over there. And he said, you know what, Gene? People seemed a little surprised when we walked in. <laughs> Can you imagine, David? It's <laughs> you're, of you're all days. You're Outback Steakhouse in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and in yeah. walks George and Barbara Bush. He said they gave us a standing ovation. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, well. mm. Wow. <laughs> anyway, Not I do. It's probably the only time in their whole life they ever stayed at a Hampton Inn. I'm but it is saying. a real 
it, there is there's some truth to the fact that he was probably just as or more secure there yes. than in a uh, fortified <laughs> facility, right? That's what he said. No one, Gene, no one would dream. Because, you know, at that point, David, we didn't know what was happening. And there was concern. All the presidents had increased protection right? Um, from that point forward for a while. Uh-huh. And he felt safe at the Hampton Inn in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah. But he, he didn't he didn't spend the entire time of his son's presidency there. There were frequent visits, obviously, to Washington, including staying at the the, the residence. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had the opportunity to do something that no other president had done. Um, we all know John Adams had a son, John Quincy Adams, who became <laughs> president as well. But John Quincy Adams, uh, when he became president, his his father was not well and and did not live that much longer. So they did not have the opportunity to interact in person, right? When when right. Junior was was president, that was very different in this case. Uh, actual, you know, meetings in the White House where the former president would backbench, you know, would sit in the back and listen, uh, not always contributing, but wanting to be part of it mm-hmm. if he could. You weren't part of those meetings very often, but you certainly had a sense of what the president liked about being there and what he didn't. And there probably is a little bit of a mix of that. So describe the nature of those, if you will, the opportunity to be in a sense, the fly on the wall when your son is president and he allows you to be in the room a few times for important conversations is wonderful. But I mean, he, he'd been operating in the political and national security realm for decades at that point, And he felt that he couldn't chime in because it wasn't his show anymore. What was that tension like? You know, one of the smartest things I did, and I did not realize at the time just how brilliant this decision of mine was, and i have it's been a huge disappointment to people like yourself and to historians like John Meacham and press people. When the two presidents, this is and this is more about their phone calls, if I was with President Bush and the President of the United States called his father, I mm-hmm. left the room. Mm-hmm. And I never, ever set in on any of their conversations, either at the White House Mm -hmm. or any of their phone calls, because I truly felt it was none of my business what they talked about. And I made the right decision because starting then, but even more so, quite frankly, since George W. left office, I have been hounded mainly by historians and some reporters. Come on, Gene, give it up. You know what they talked about. And the answer is I don't. And there were a couple of times when President Bush, the 41, would say I would get up to leave his office and he would say, oh, stay, stay. I'm like, nope. I don't think so. I did have lunch or dinner with them. We were at the White House. I was with them at the White House. This was when they were setting up the first Bush-Clinton partnership, right. which I'm sure you want to talk about. But Absolutely. we had we had dinner at the White House that night with the president, and I think Laura was there too. But uh, we just visited, they just visited like father and son would visit. Mm-hmm. So I really can't give you much insight. President mm-hmm. Bush, 41, did again feel, and part of this was about intelligence briefings, Mm-hmm. Even though he got almost a daily briefing, and David, you would know this better than me, the scale of the briefing he would get 
was nothing compared to what the president of the United States was getting. Would, right. would you agree with that? Absolutely. The the current president's daily brief that the incumbent president gets, so what his son would have been getting every day, can include everything. It can be right. the most sensitive secrets. It's up-to-date issues. And it reveals, um, if you look at it, it really reveals what top presidential concerns are from the previous few days, because often it's responding to questions from the president or things that will be on the president's agenda coming up. So there may be some issues under consideration that Mm -hmm. this intelligence gives some context for that would be quite revealing. There's no reason for a former president to get that level of detail. It's much more situational when it's a former president. But I have no doubt in my mind, even if he didn't talk about it, that he certainly enjoyed the times when he was able to sit in on his son's <laughs> current briefings and current hear. Current briefings, he, yes. You know, that was because his some, part. some of the intelligence operations and analysis, um, some of that dated back to when he was in the director's job and he set in motion some of the things that enabled the CIA to do what it did decades later. So I have a feeling he got a real kick out of it, even if he did the right thing and decided to keep his mouth shut about it. He kept his mouth shut about it. And you're absolutely right to sit in on the briefings with the president. He uh, loved it, loved it. But one of the reasons why he he would tell people, sometimes even reporters, and, and in later years, that one of the reasons he he would tell you that he did not give his son as much advice as people thinks he maybe did. And he said, the reason is the president knows the big picture. And his immediate, you know, the Secretary of State, his national security advisor, they know the big picture. Yeah. For for instance, today, if if President Bush were to be asked to give President Biden advice about Ukraine, he would laugh because he doesn't and 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 no one, because he was DCI and because he was president, no one was more aware of the fact he President Bush truly felt he did not have the information he needed to really give advice to the president of the United States because he did not know the big picture, nor should he. He knew just the basics. That is is an interesting insight, and it shows a a depth of understanding. Part of it is on the personal side, right? He had worked with many of the people who were his son's principal advisors. And when when you realize that the president is getting information from the finest intelligence community in the world, and is getting information from foreign leaders that he is developing contacts with and has people advising him like Condi Rice, Steve Hadley, Colin Powell. Um, yet you probably realize that maybe you don't have as much to add right. as, as ego would tell you you do. So there's that definitely that part of it. But there's also a contrast, Gene, because some other former presidents um, who didn't have necessarily the personal connection they they found it almost a duty to offer their thoughts to try to help the current president. Richard Nixon is probably most famous right. here where he would write semi-regular and sometimes quite lengthy letters to his successors about here's what you need to keep in mind about Russia. And, you know, coming out of the Cold War, you know, President Bush, President Clinton, President Bush, uh, here here is what you need to know about this. Um I think the President's Club, the book by Michael Duffy and Nancy Gibbs, does a good job of describing this. That book. Nixon kind of thought that his 
his way to help was to offer his wisdom from mm -hmm. afar in these letters. And it's a different approach than that that George Bush took. President Bush would, was dismissive of that. And, and I don't want to speak ill of President Carter. He's a wonderful person, but he also was famous for getting outside of his lane and as, you know, going to North Korea, going to Haiti, issuing his opinions. And again, and I do again think David, just his, President Bush's deep background and intelligence, no one got this better than he did. Mm. And and he just feels he, he just he, it, one of his resounding thoughts throughout his post presidency and even more so when his son was president mm -hmm. were were off the stage. Yeah. We need he really did not believe in speaking out, whether it was son or, you know, he famously left President Clinton a note of. Uh, Oh, yeah. In the Oval Office, I actually start the book I wrote about President Bush's post-presidency. Mm -hmm. He left a note for President Clinton. I'll just read a part of it. January 20th, 1993. When I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt four years ago. I hope you will feel that, too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be tough times made even more difficult by criticism that you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. You will be our president when you read this note. I wish you well. Your success is now our country's success. I am rooting hard for you. Good luck, George. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. What a great, and I'll, great. I'll say he started the tradition. Ronald Reagan had left a letter for him, but it wasn't quite the same. It, it was, was a, a funny little note. It was about, don't ditty. forget to feed the squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was the first time it was more of a, you know, mm -hmm. you're everyone's president now and let's act like it kind of a message, um, which, which has generally been true uh, since then, generally. Um, you mentioned two things I do want to follow up on. Um, I do want to come back to the relationship with, with Bill Clinton, which was a bit of a surprise to many people. 
um, who witnessed the 1992 election. But before that, you mentioned that publicly, the president did not want to be advising his son or frankly, many others who succeeded him. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't trying to help the U.S. government because he still traveled overseas. He still met with foreign leaders. Some of those were friends. You know, if he's going and visiting John Major or, uh, you know, Prime Minister Mulroney or many other people, sometimes they were essentially just private uh, meetings talking more about family than anything else. But he would go to places like Russia. And Mm -hmm. when someone has the opportunity to meet with foreign leaders in a setting like that, it's possible that there could be parts of the discussion or parts of the mannerisms or something else that you pick up on that are actually useful to the people he used to work with at CIA. And I seem to recall that he roped you into one of these once. Wasn't it in Russia where he he wanted you to be in the room where it happened? It was not in Russia. It was his, as I, as I told you at the beginning, I think President Bush always secretly sort of considered himself a CIA agent. <laughs> and this was uh, his aide. This was when, pretty sure it's when Yeltsin died. Uh, okay. And I'm not, no, that's not right. He's in Russia for another reason. He's in okay. Russia. He's mm-hmm. going to meet with President Yeltsin. He did go, he and President Clinton represent the United States at Yeltsin's funeral. Yep. But this is, this is something else. He's that. in Moscow for some mm-hmm. reason. He's going to meet with President Yeltsin. And he turns, this aide is sitting outside of the, the pre- Yeltsin's office at the Kremlin. And a Secret Service agent comes out and says, President Bush asked me to come get you and he wants you to sit in on this meeting and he wants you to remember everything that is said. So John Carlo didn't have a clue. His name was John Carlo Pirasuti. It's very confused. He goes in and he sits down and he does, he's young. So he, re, you know, is listening very closely to the conversation between president Bush and president Yeltsin and then in the car afterwards, President Bush turns to John Carlo and says, when you get to the hotel, immediately type up every single thing you remember President Yeltsin said to me. Mm-hmm. And John Carlo says, is this for a book you want to write? <laughs> John Carlo said, President Bush sort of looked at him and said, no, I need to tell, we need to give all this to the CIA. <laughs> they, they, will, <laughs> they need to know every single thing that, that Yeltsin, he said, some of it is very, will be very helpful to them. There were occasions more so when George W. was, pre- a lot more so when George W. was president. But I also remember him calling Warren Christopher there were, mm-hmm. when he was Secretary of State and probably Madeleine Albright. I know, both, yeah, both I know. Of them during the Clinton administration. President Clinton's secretaries of state. Yeah. Mainly he would give the information to the CIA, but once mm-hmm. in a while he would go, never to the president, he would go to the secretary of state. Mm-hmm. But what you're remembering, when I was pulled into duty, um, the former leader of Libya, Gaddafi, uh, his son, son was Saif, touring yeah. the United yeah. States. Mm-hmm. And Condi Rice was then Secretary of State, and she called President Bush and said that Gaddafi's son, I don't remember his name, we'll just call him Mr. Gaddafi, Gaddafi Jr., specifically requested to see President Bush 41. 
and was willing to travel to Houston. And Condi said, this is a visit we very much would like for you to do, sir. We think we can, they, they were hoping that he would succeed his father. He was someone they felt they could, that the, the United States felt they could work with. He'd been educated in the West. There was high hopes that he could help bring Libya to a more, what would you call it, David? A more uh, agreeable, a better place in world relations. I don't know, more of a constructive role. Let's say. Unfortunately, eventually, Gaddafi got overthrown, and the son was among. He was assassinated by by the people who overthrew the government. But anyway, he comes to Houston, and President Bush says, "I need for you to sit in on this meeting," and just like. Uh, he said to John Carlo, he says, I want you to remember absolutely everything he says and then type up your notes because we need to give this only to Condi, but mm-hmm. I also want to give it to the CIA. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this young man walks in. He was very good looking, I might add. This sort of irrelevant to the conversation, but it was a fascinating conversation. The main thing he wanted to talk to President Bush about, he wanted President Bush to confirm the idea that the United States had orchestrated the Iraq invading Kuwait. Mm. The United States had driven all of this. They had tricked Saddam Hussein into invading Kuwait so Mm. that we could intervene and that eventually it led to the downfall of Saddam Hussein. And he said, Mr. President, we know that you Mm. did this. And my question is, why didn't you just assassinate Saddam Hussein? Why did you orchestrate this war? And I I remember President Bush just saying there, looking at him. (laughs) I'll never forget what he said. He said, that is so interesting. He says, first of all, we do not assassinate people. I know people think we do. We do not. We do not assassinate people. And number two, we're just not that smart. <laughs> he said, we did not orchestrate this war. We would never orchestrate a war. But he said, quite frankly, young man, we're just not that smart. Hmm. It was just the funniest. And, and I don't know if we convinced him or not. But within a, a year or so, he was dead. He'd it been should shatter the conspiracy theory. The problem is yeah. it's just more evidence for it, which is, well, of course, they're denying it. And they're denying it by pretending <laughs> They're too stupid to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I want to circle back to Bill Clinton because certainly few people would have thought in the heated days of the election of 1992 and the immediate aftermath that they would develop what I think is fair to describe as a genuine friendship across uh, generations. Yeah. Um, to describe briefly how that happened, what brought them together at first and what really coalesced the bonds between them? Um, it's, I love telling this story, David, because it's really the way we're supposed to be. You look at all the division in our country right now, and I love talking about President Bush and what he stood for, because what he would say, remind people today, is what unites us is still more powerful than what divides us. And there's no better example than he and Bill Clinton. So the matchmaker was his son. And what had happened 2004, when all of us are eating Christmas dinner, a huge tsunami washed ashore in South Asia. To this day, I think it's considered one of the worst natural disasters that, you know, in the, ever in the history 
tens of thousands of people died. And the United States was racing to help. We even sent an aircraft carrier, the Abraham Lincoln, to help search for bodies, rescue and search. And of course, USAID, the State Department, the United States' aid program, they sent boots, had boots on the ground. But it was a massive job ahead to help these countries. The hardest hit were Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Thailand, the Maldives. So all of our nonprofits are also racing there, Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, AmeriCares. The problem is, is they needed huge infusions of money yep. to help. And so the President of the United States asked his dad and asked Bill Clinton if they would be willing to partner to raise money for the nonprofits. We were not going to set up our own foundation but just to help all these other great organizations raise money. So both of them said yes. So they began to do public service announcements. Um, they did a couple of interviews. But what really, that all happened in January. But then in February, the president asked the two of them to travel to the region to represent him and to visit with the heads of state of all the countries that have been affected, to have a personal conversation. What can we do to help? How's it going? What do you need from us? And the two of them said, of course. And I went with them. And as I say in the book I wrote about his post-presidency, they left on that trip as colleagues with a common purpose, and they came home best friends. And I, I can tell you exactly what happened because I watched it happen. We did not know then what was going on with President Bush, but uh, he absolutely was in the early stages of Parkinson's disease. It would be a year or two before he was diagnosed. But we'd all had noticed that he was a little unsteady on his feet. Right. He would miss a step now and then. And so I was worried about him. The press coverage was huge and they'd be up and down planes and I mean, the steps of planes and walking, walking someplace that had been destroyed by a tsunami, uneven ground to walk on. So on the plane going over, I introduced myself to President Clinton and I took him in my confidence and I asked him to look out for him. And he took it to heart. He was yeah. amazing. He made sure they never left him behind. He would very discreetly help him up from a chair, help him downstairs. He was amazing. On President Bush's side, George Bush has never been late in his life. <laughs> President Clinton has never been on time in his life. And within yeah. a couple days of the trip, it was driving President Bush crazy. And we were having a dinner. The prime minister of Sri Lanka hosted a dinner for them. Her country had been devastated by this storm. The dinner was over and President Bush felt it was time to leave. And President Clinton, he says, she's got to either go back to work or get some sleep. We need to get out of here. Well, President Clinton's mixing and mingling. And President Bush asked me to tell his staff to pull him out. And they refused to do so. They said, no, 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 he, he gets mad at us. He, if he doesn't like to be removed from He does discussion. not like to be removed. So I go back and tell that to President Bush. And he said, I'll do it. So he wades into the crowd. He taps President Clinton on the shoulder. And he said, Bill, it is time to go home. These people have better things to do than to entertain us. Go get in the car. 
And he looked at President Bush and he said, yes, sir. And that is what happened the rest of the trip. I remember one morning in Thailand, President Bush is in the car reading his book. President Clinton is only about five minutes late. I'm standing on the porch of the hotel deciding if it's time for me to go pound on his door. And out he walks and he sees President Bush in the car. He didn't see me standing there. He sort of whispered under his breath. He said, I hope I can say this word on your podcast. Yes, you can. He said, oh, shit, I'm in so much trouble. (laughs) You know what? Mrs. Bush is convinced that her husband became the father Bill Clinton never had. And I think that's absolutely right. They became, they were so close, David. Mm -hmm. And if you had a 10-hour podcast, I could not tell you all the wonderful (laughs) stories. But uh, I remember the last time President Clinton saw him. This was in the summer, summer of 2018, right? 18. Mrs. Bush yeah. already died. Mm-hmm. And I and President Clinton came every summer to visit, and he could tell the end was coming. Right. And I walked him to the car, and he's just sobbing. Mm-hmm. And he made me promise that I would call him when I knew death was imminent. He says, I have to see him one more time. And you know what? I didn't call him. Because they'd had such a great visit, yeah. and I wanted that to be his last memory. Yeah, and that that does bring up the fact that he he developed other relationships with former presidents that were unexpected. Yes. Who who was outside of his family? Um, who was the? I think it was four or five days before he died. Who who was the former president who he spoke with last? President Obama. President Obama was in Houston. They also became close, not as close as he and President Clinton, but they were very, they were very fond of each other. It was President Obama who gave President Bush the Medal of Freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, President Obama was in Houston. He was speaking actually at the Baker Institute, at Secretary Baker's Institute at Rice. And he was coming to town and he wanted to come see President Bush. And I told his chief of staff, when we set up the meeting, I said, I'm not sure he'll still be here. And she's like, oh, my goodness. And anyway, the day came and it's about three days where President Bush died. I recommended to President Bush that we cancel the visit because he really wasn't up to visiting. He said, no, I I would like to see Barack. Mm -hmm. So with President Obama's permission, I invited John Meacham who was in town for the same event. He was actually going to interview President Obama. Mm -hmm. The Bush's son, Neil, and I, we sat in on the meeting and we had a nice visit. And then President Obama looked at me and he said, Gene, I want the room. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. And I, so I had to kick out Neil and John Meacham and myself. Mm -hmm. And then I'm visiting with President Obama's staff and a couple other people. And I realized John Meacham had disappeared and he was eavesdropping. He was trying to eavesdrop on the two presidents. And I said, John, (laughs) what? I chewed him out. And he said, this is Gene, this is history. I'm sorry. I'm a historian. And what's going on in there is history. So I chewed him out. And then I confessed, David, I said, okay, what are they talking about? (laughs) (laughs) President Obama wanted to thank him for his service. And it it was very emotional, Mm -hmm. very emotional. And he just said, you're my hero. Then he started with World War II. 
and he just wanted to thank him for his service. So I yelled at John and then thanked him profusely for listening. But uh, my favorite President Obama story, he's coming to town to do a big Democratic fundraiser. Right. And he was getting really bad press about something. I can't remember what it was, but he was, President Bush was irritated because he was on President Obama's side and he was irritated at the bad press he was getting. He thought it was, it was unfair. And he announced to me, this was so President Bush, David, he didn't do press conferences. He didn't tweet, but he knew the value of a photo op. Oh, yeah. And he announced to me, he says, I'm going to go to the airport and greet the president upon arrival. And I'm like, what? I said, seriously? I said, why? And he said, I want to, because I would like to see him. And I'm going to go greet him. He says, he's the president of the United States, Gene. And I sort of gave him a hard time, David. I said, you never met your son when he was president. <laughs> you never met President Clinton. Yeah. He says, I want to make a statement. Yeah. And I said, do you want to talk to the press? No, by mm. showing up. I will make yeah. a statement. So off he goes. And I will tell you that President Obama never forgot it. Mm-hmm. Never, ever forgot it. And he comes off, he knew, he comes off that plane and uh, they were, they also became quite close. I, I think you raise a really interesting point. The, the, the power of the image, the power of example, mm-hmm. the power of just doing something, not bragging about it. Um, yeah. You know, you can read his, his compilation all the best and find plenty of missives to himself and others about being sure not to brag about it. Right. But, you know, he, he would go to the mosque after September 11th, you know, and be seen with Muslims at a time when there was yep. um, anti-Muslim sentiment, or he would go to a synagogue at a time of rising anti-Semitism and just be seen there um, or go and do some volunteer work and not issue a seven page press statement about the fact he was doing it, but just, just go and he do it. Sometimes with Jim Baker and others, right? Just show um, up. Just yeah, exactly. The advice: just show up. The probably uh, the picture me. that went viral <laughs> that demonstrates this is when the son, the three year old son of one of his Secret Service agents, yes. had leukemia and yeah. lost all his hair. Right. And President Bush's whole entire Secret Service detail shaved their heads. <laughs> the little boy's father shaved his head to support his son. Then all his Secret Service colleagues shaved their head, and then President Bush shaved his head. And um, Mrs. Bush was not aware he was doing that, was she? And she blamed me. Of course she did. You're she the chief of staff. Grave, you can blame for everything. Me. She, she did not appreciate that her husband was now bald. And she said, Gene, everybody's either going to think he's crazy hmm. or he's dying. You know, it went viral. And well, I'll never forget that night I'm watching the NBC nightly news and there's a whole bunch of breaking news. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. And the anchor started to hit on the big news. But he said, despite all this big breaking news, the picture that everybody's talking about today, that he put up that picture of the bald George Bush with the little boy sitting on his lap. Well, it's not too often we we got to say to Barbara Bush, you were wrong, but she was wrong <laughs> about that one because it was neither one of those things that she mentioned. In fact, the, the the third interpretation of that, which was the dominant one and perhaps almost universal one, which is, you know, what a great thing to do for that kid, what a great thing to do for that family, what a great yeah. thing to do just to show solidarity on this on this issue, right? And the amazing thing is his hair all grew back. 
I'm so jealous of that man. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's one other president that there's uh, an interaction with that, that frankly I had forgotten from when I, I first saw your book a few years ago. Um, but I recently revisited the book and I should mention it's called the man I knew the amazing story of George HW Bush's post-presidency. You talk about the time that he had an idea in, I think, 2008 during the Democratic primary debate when he noticed that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and I think John Edwards, the senator from North Carolina, were getting almost all of the questions and all the attention. Um, but he noticed that there were some other people up there that seemed to get a, a bit of a bad break in all of that. Um, what, did, what did he want to do and what did he do? You have a good memory. He was really irritated because he had been that person in 1980, the, the first time he ran for president. He comes into work the day after that first debate, mm -hmm. and he said, I would like to get Joe Biden, uh, then a senator from Delaware. Yeah. And it was a senator from Connecticut. Oh, my gosh. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Chris, Chris somebody. Hmm? Who? Was it Chris Dodd? Chris Dodd. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. He said, get Joe Biden and Chris Dodd on the phone. I'm furious with how they were treated at the debate last night. And I said to him, David, I said, sir, do you really think you're the person, you really think they want to hear from you today? I just okay. thought it would be odd for the former the Democratic Republican primary president. debate we have to keep yes. in mind. And I, he said, I, we're good, I'm good friends with these two. I've been where they are. Get them on the phone. So we get them both on the phone. And I, I eavesdropped on that conversation and he was hilarious. He said, I've been where you were last night. It's just ridiculous. He said, this is why I couldn't get any traction in 1980. They're, they're focused on this Barack Obama guy and where did he come from and Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. And, you know, I will tell you, uh, President Biden, Vice President Biden, when he was vice president, he came to Houston to visit with MD Anderson, his son, Bo had already died of cancer right. and he was here to visit with MD Anderson about his cancer project. And he wanted to see president Bush and we didn't range with his advanced team for president Bush to go meet the vice president at his hotel. And the day of the visit, the advanced guy came into my office and he said, the vice president had looked at his schedule that morning and was livid that President Bush was calling on him. And he said, I call on him. I go to him. I hmm. either go to his house or to his office. He doesn't come to me. Hmm. And, the, and I said, well, that didn't make any sense. I said, President Bush has a two-car motorcade and we're all sad. And he said, I'll be fired. I will be fired if we don't switch this. Well, to make a long story short, we threw the Secret Service under the bus with their permission because they really wanted 40. It just made more sense for 41 to go to the vice president. But I just I thought that said a lot about Joe Biden, quite yeah. frankly. And um, absolutely. So I, I want to talk a little bit more generally uh, about the post presidency here. So Obviously, there's a lot of time here, a lot of experience to do various things. I mean, George Bush was jumping out of perfectly good airplanes multiple times. Uh, he, he went back to Chichijima to, to visit the site where he had been shot down in the Second World War. 
visited dozens, if not a hundred countries as a post president <laughs> and traveled to all 50 states and then was doing things like the support for so many causes from cancer to points of light to disaster, these, um, disaster recovery. The he President Clinton recovery. went full time in disaster work. Did, did he ever express to you, probably not explicitly, but did he ever express to you implicitly or did you pick up that there were some regrets that reflecting back uh, after a couple of decades of this post-presidency thing, that there are some things that he, he wishes he would have done differently or maybe spent more or less time in? For the most part, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um I am going to tell you something I'm not sure I've ever told anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let me start with, he, uh, particularly his partnership with President Clinton, they went on after the tsunami, the Bush-Clinton tsunami fund, then we did the Bush-Clinton Katrina fund, and then there was a Bush-Clinton Ike fund. Every Mm -hmm. hurricane, they hated the hurricanes. Hurricane Harvey that all the presidents did, the disaster work gave president between the disaster work and the George Bush School of Government and Public Service mm-hmm. and the other, you know, cancer and points of light. But he felt he was making a difference and he loved that role, David. And I don't think there were any regrets. Mm-hmm. Would he like to have won in 1992? Of course. But President Bush eventually began to realize and to talk about that if he had won in 92, it would have delayed his two sons' political ambitions by four years. None of them would have run for governor while he was president. And President Bush said, you know, life just sort of has an odd way of working itself out. The only thing I ever heard him talk about, and was only once or twice, and it's such an interesting thing to say to you now, he would have liked to have helped figure out the Taiwan problem. Yeah. He talked about it a couple of times that because of his relationship with China Mm -hmm. and they trusted him. And of course he had a relationship with Taiwan. He really was hoping there are a couple of times he said, I, I would love to help China figure this out. And that never happened. The opportunity never arose. And I think it's funny, I I can't believe I just admitted that to you, but (laughs) I don't know that it's a big secret. And I know he would be frustrated today with Mm -hmm. the news. He'd be worried about it. Right. He'd be worried. Absolutely. Yeah. The the irony there, maybe not full irony, but the the contrast, if nothing else, is that he, you know, used his leverage, you know, used the political capital, used the relationships he had built with Middle Eastern leaders to actually mm-hmm. make what what looked like the best progress in a long time on the Middle East peace process as president. But the the China Taiwan issue, despite his his ties to the Chinese leadership from his time in, uh, in the country, just couldn't couldn't move that forward. So I think that actually makes a lot of sense. This is exactly um, what's happening now is exactly what he was worried about. Yeah. A little bit a little bit more before we close here. Gene, I'd love to hear your reflections on being 
chief of staff for a former president because being a chief of staff for a president while in office <laughs> gets plenty of attention. You know, Chris Whipple mm-hmm. has written the wonderful book, The Gatekeepers, and plenty of chiefs of staff talk about it publicly and have events focused solely on them talking about the hazards of the job. You are the spear catcher. Your job is to yeah. protect the president's ability to to do his, his duties, whether politically or uh, constitutionally. Um, but it's a little bit different when it's a former president. Um, you get a whole bunch of different kinds of requests. And of course, there are no formal official constitutional duties you have to protect. <laughs> you're protecting reputation. You're protecting time. You're protecting interest. So reflecting back on it, what do you think it is that is the best of the chief of staff job for a a former president like George Bush? And what is it that was always a frustration or something that kind of made you feel like you were earning your pay for that part of the job? (laughs) Um, There were a couple of times I thought about quitting either because I had an opportunity, a job opportunity that I was interested in, or at some point I just felt I was burnt out. And because there were certainly, particularly like after Hurricane Katrina and and I was working 80 hour weeks and he, I just trying to keep up with him. And then I would wake up in the middle of the night. There were two times specifically I thought about quitting and then I wake up in the middle of the night and realize I had the best job in the world. <laughs> and and part of it is, a big part of it is, well, maybe all of it is, he was a lot of fun to work for. He was, I, I as I say in my book, there's an entire chapter called I Have an Idea. And it was the four scariest words he ever said to me, really five scariest words. He would always say to them at seven, he would come to get to the office about seven o'clock in the morning. He would have had a pot of coffee, read four newspapers, and he would sit in my office and and at least three or four times a month, he would say, Gene, I have an idea. And I'd be like, oh my God. And, you know, sometimes it'd be little things like, let's go get pizza for lunch and other times it would be, I think I'm going to go back to Chichijima where I was shot down, or <laughs> I'm going to start jumping out of airplanes, yeah. or let's invite George Clooney to go with us to Louisiana. He he was such a big thinker, <laughs> and he so he was just a lot of fun. And yes, I worked impossible hours, but how lucky was I, David, to go home almost every single night and just feel great about what I did all day. Mm-hmm. Just by showing up to do my job, I was making a difference. Right. And I used, I remember one time I was confiding in a friend that I felt sort of guilty because mm-hmm. I wasn't doing any volunteer work of any kind. I says, here I work for the Points of Light president. And my friend, God lover said, uh, Jean, why don't you look at it this way? You're getting paid to work 40 hours a week. The other 40 hours you're at the office with that man, that's volunteer work. And I do remember, I, I decided at one point, a couple of years before he died, that I was going to go part-time, David. Mm-hmm. I was going to go back to writing. I was going to go part-time. So I talked to President Bush and he was very supportive. And, and then he said, am I allowed to call you on the days that you're home writing? <laughs> And I knew, yeah, that's not going to work. 
So it was, it was just an unbelievably great ride. I, I feel so blessed that I worked for that man for 25 years. I am guessing, I don't want to put words into your mouth, um, but I think I've heard you say some of these words that part of the, the category of best aspects of the position and part of the, the worst aspects of the position are exactly the same and centered around the same event, which is the years and years of meticulous planning and then the absolute bedlam for the death of the former president mm-hmm. and the, the memorial services and everything that, that revolves around that. Um, I recall a couple of times talking with you before his death and you were, you were talking about the meeting you have coming up about the funeral and there was no funeral, right? This was planning right. for many years in advance, but you, you, you have to be doing everything from, you know, the, the military units to the, the families, to the other presidents, to the transportation. And it, it seems like such a logistical undertaking and you were at the center of it. And I, and I know that's a lot of work. Um, and I know it was a lot of frustration, but I also know that that's one of the most important things you feel like, like you did over the years. Talk through that a little bit. It is, it's a lot of work. And as I said once, uh, to a friend who was wondering why I worked so hard on the funeral. And I said, here, here's the deal. I'm in charge of an event that will stretch over five to six days that could take place. If he died in Kennebunkport, it would have taken place in four cities and he died in Houston. So, so it was just Houston, Washington, back to Houston and then burial at Texas A&M, but could take place in three to four cities. It will be on live television almost the entire time. It involves a huge family that lives all over the country and it will involve former presidents, kings. I mean, Prince Charles came to the funeral. And, and I says, it, 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 and all this is your responsibility. And you have no idea when it's going to happen. And, and therein is the catch, David, is that you plan and plan and plan, but you have no idea when it's going to happen. So what I told my friend is, when President Bush dies, I need to hit the execute button. The time for planning is over. Right. All the decisions and all the planning. And so you just constantly, as people died or circumstances change, you just, it, it was always a force in motion. But I knew it was important to give him the send off he deserved. And I think we did. I think it we was- did. It was a remarkably moving experience in in Washington. I was not obviously in Houston, uh, but in in Washington, and importantly, um, it also full of humor. I mean, how can you have Alan Simpson giving a eulogy and not have some some humor? Um, <laughs> I so hope it you was were at absolutely. The were you at? I hope you were at the cathedral. I was at the cathedral in Washington. Um, for, Did for the you get an invitation there. initially? Or, uh, so let me tell you a little story, which will tell you everything you need to know about how he felt about the CIA. Hmm. Um, 
my mentors for this funeral was President Reagan and President Ford's chief of staffs. They saved my life. Yeah. And they they gave me wonderful memos. And I've done the same. I wrote like a 10-page memo. Um, and you learn more from what you did wrong than what you did right. But one of the things they warned me of is that all of Congress is invited to the cathedral plus their spouse. And with both the That's Reagan automatic. and... I'm sorry, what? That, that's automatic. That is just automatic. what happens for these events. And yeah. a lot of those seats will come back to you, particularly if they're out of session, which happened to the Reagans and the Fords. The Fords literally bust in Boy Scouts to fill up the cathedral. I can't remember what the Reagans did. And so I, so they said to me, you need to be prepared to fill a lot of seats in the 11th hour so I was I was ready, and I did a couple of things. Um, I over we way over invited for about until about five o'clock the afternoon before the service at the cathedral. There were two hundred and seventy two people I could not see. Um, I actually had a B list ready to go. They were invited to the departure ceremony at Andrews, right. but at the last minute could be folded into the cathedral. But I said to President Bush that the Boy Scout. What they did with the Boy Scouts, I I knew once I took care of the people I couldn't seat, whatever seats I had left over, I needed someone to go to with those seats mm -hmm. that could fill them. And uh, I suggested to President Bush, I got 500 seats back. And I told him, uh, he loved talking about his funeral, which made this all a lot mm -hmm. easier. <laughs> and I said to him, if your aircraft carrier... If the USS George H.W. Bush is in port, hmm. how about if we invite sailors from the Bush? And he said, well, I would love to give them some seats, but I want all the extra tickets to go to the CIA. So that's what we did. That, that makes great sense. That makes great sense because I remember um, when, when I was there walking, walking back and around before it began and seeing some of my former colleagues uh, who were still actively employed there. I had been gone for quite a while. You would have been invited because we'd become um, friends. President Bush well, considered you a friend. Yeah, it was just, a, it wasn't a complete surprise to see them. Um, <laughs> but, but I remember thinking that some of these people are undercover and how interesting, right? That these are people that um, are currently serving there, um, had been there for a while. And some of them I knew had a connection with him because they'd been there long enough that they had briefed him um, when he was president or in his post-presidency as well, but they were still active employees. That's, and so you you hadn't told me about that plan for the excess yeah. tickets in advance, but I figured it out afterwards when you I saw those active employees there and said, you know, all right, you know, but both both George Bush and Gene Becker get a pat on the back for that one. His idea, and I will tell you something funny. Of course, security was huge at the cathedral because all the presidents were there, mm -hmm. including the current president, the current vice president, the current everybody, all the former presidents. And so many foreign leaders. So I had a point of, Angela Merkel came and a yeah. couple, and anyway, I had a, a envelope full of tickets and that I turned over to my point of contact at the agency. And I said to them, I said, you know, we will need names. They will have to go through a checkpoint. We will need their names. To which she said, yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they found a way to handle that. I am sure. They found a way to handle that. So I said, yeah. okay. <laughs> she said, don't worry. She says, I will not be giving you any names. But don't worry about that. So I don't I don't know how it happened, but I think that you just you just verified to me they all got there. 
I, I, I don't know if all of them got there, but I certainly know. Well, I know um, the church was full, so. Yeah, oh, I, the, the, to the <laughs> seams, absolutely. Um, one final note um, before we, we go to our chatterbox. Um, one thing that strikes me being a student of the presidency in many ways and writing presidential history is here we have an example which is relatively rare in modern history of a one-term president um, because we had a succession, right? You had you had Reagan as a two-term president, and then you had Clinton, and then you had Bush, and then you had Obama. We've had a lot of two-term presidents, unlike any period in American history, mm-hmm. except for the uh, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, only interrupted by John Adams with one term. Um, and yet, the number of books that have come out in the last few years about George Bush, about 41, remarkable. You have the Bush, uh, the book 41 by his son about his father. You have several books by members of the family reflecting on different aspects of them, including the, the love story of George and Barbara Bush. Mm. We have your book, the, the Man I Knew About the Post-Presidency. We have Barbara, the pearls of wisdom relating Barbara Bush's many aphorisms and and quips over the years. Um, you as chief of staff are probably aware, and of course, the biography by John Meacham and, and mm-hmm. others who have looked at his foreign policy record. Um, you as chief of staff had a window into most, if not all of those. And, and I wonder if you just sit back and smile sometimes that here's someone who just by the number of years in office probably wouldn't get as much attention as some of the other presidents. And yet when it comes to the amounts of words and the emotion behind those words that are put into print, it's absolutely amazing how his story is being told and retold in so many ways. Well, I have something surprising to tell you. Um, I was in New York in end of October and I had a book idea that I wanted to pitch to my editor, had nothing to do with President Bush. And, um, so we had lunch and he sort of liked my book idea. And he said, well, let's talk about that. He said, yeah, I think that's a possibility. But he said, I have a book I want you to write. And he said, Gene, the world is not done with 41. He says, I want you to write another book about him. And I looked at him and his name is Sean Desmond. And I said, uh, Sean, as you know, President Bush died at the end of my last book. I said, I got nothing. You know, where do you think we're going with this? Well, he wants me, you mentioned Pearls of Wisdom, which is a book uh, that I did after Mrs. Bush died about all the advice. She was a big advice giver, Mm -hmm. all the advice she gave out. And he said, you know, I just think the world misses President Bush right now. And I want you to do a book that's the 41 version of Pearls of Wisdom. Mm. But instead of advice he gave, Let's focus on the lessons we all learned from him. Hmm. And the working title of the book is Character Matters. Yeah. And I looked at him and he said, can you do this book? And I'm, he said, there is a, there's a chapter in The Man I Knew called Lessons Learned. And he says, I think you have a whole book. Hmm. And so I, by deadlines, May 1st, I'm trying to talk him into June 1st. He, the book's going to come out President's Day 2024. Perfect. But I, it, it really, and I said to him, I would like to talk to the five kids. I don't, I need to, I would like their permission to do this because I think they think I'm done. 
I thought I was done. So I would like for them, their blessing to do this book and they could not have been nicer and more enthusiastic. And in fact, one of them emailed me and said, when is this book coming out? I'm like, okay, I haven't even signed the contract yet, but you, you have a great point, David, in that it it's, I call him the Renaissance man. But I almost fell off my chair when my editor said, I need another 41 book from you. Right. We're not done with him. Right. So I'm thrilled. I'm going to start working on it next week. Well, you need to because, you know, next early next year, not only President's Day, but if my memory serves, June is, his would have been birthday. his 100th birthday, right? Yeah, it is. We're going to put it out before that 100th birthday. Uh, and because... Yeah. We're going to do it President's Day. It's going to sort of be the kickoff to his 100th birthday year. But I'm really touched that my editor thought of this idea, and I'm sort of right. embarrassed that I didn't. But he's right. The The man I knew is still selling well, and mm. he said, let's do another book. That's remarkable. But that, that said, I, I hope you also put a pin in the other idea and you don't lose it because I, I I'm not going to. I promise I won't. Well. Sometime over a beer, um, I'll tell you what that idea is. Uh, I would love that. Let me open up our chatterbox now and ask you a random question from within. Jean, please recommend any recent book you've read or TV show you've watched. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I'm reading Brad Meltzer's new book Ooh. and I'm not, I'm not done with it. It's Is amazing. The Nazi conspiracy one? Yes. The Nazi conspiracy. And if I weren't talking to you right now, I'd probably be reading this book. I'm a huge fan of Brad Meltzer. So even though I just started it, I'm going to go ahead and recommend it. And, it, yeah. and it's so timely because of the horrible anti-Semitism trend mm -hmm. in our country right now. And he addresses that. So it's a wonderful book. So that's a book I'm going to recommend. And as far as, as TV shows, yes, I'm an, infa I'm an infamous binge watcher. Mm -hmm. Um, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, what is wrong with you? Watch it, <laughs> watch it now. That yeah. might be my favorite. The two good recommendations. And I, and I have to say that if I, I have not read the Nazi conspiracy yet, but if it reads as well and as quickly as Brad Meltzer usually writes, yes. you're going to have no trouble finishing that in a few days. So you can get started on your next book very did quickly. You, did you read the book he wrote? I can't remember the name of it, about how Lincoln was almost assassinated on his yep. way to, oh my yep. gosh, on I couldn't put that book ride, down either. Uh, the, the ride to the inauguration. Yeah, yeah. What, a, what a great read. What a great I story. Love his non, I never thought I would love J Brad's nonfiction books more than his fiction books, but he's opened yep. up a whole new yeah. area of expertise and I love it. Well, Jean, thank you for spending so much time to share your insights on the post-presidency in general, but through the specific lens of George Bush and uh, your experiences with him and, and what he did in the years after he left the commander-in-chief position. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you, David. Let's have that beer sometime soon. I look forward to it. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Hold up. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.